Our Lord God, our hearts are full of all kinds of things right now. We may feel unworthy, we may feel worried. What we need is to hear your voice. Please do that now, despite the weirdness of this medium. May you speak. Give us hope, joy and peace in Jesus today. Amen. As a kid, I used to hate those dreams where you'd wake up, well, you'd be in a dream and you'd find yourself at school. It felt just like school. Everything looked the same. The only problem was you looked down and you realised you're wearing your pyjamas or worse, nothing at all. It's that feeling of shame, of embarrassment, of not wearing the right clothes. Maybe it's showing up for an event. You didn't read the invitation properly, so you show up in jeans and a T-shirt, only to find out it's a suit and tie kind of gig. This morning, as we continue watching Zechariah's vision, we see a man caught out not in an embarrassing situation, but wearing clothes that are terrifyingly inadequate. We're in the middle of a vision seen by Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet as Jerusalem and Judah were being rebuilt after the Babylonian exile. He brought God's message at a time of disappointment. There's no temple and no king over God's people. Last week, the fourth scene in the vision finished on a high. A picture, a promise of Jerusalem, a city without borders, without a wall. It didn't need borders or a wall because it was overflowing with God's people from all nations. But as we move to this next scene, this fifth scene of this long vision, we come across a serious problem, a terrifying problem. The terrifying scene we're given in chapter 3 is a courtroom. Now, I've never been to court. I reckon any time you're in court, especially if you're the accused, it's a scary place to be. But this courtroom is terrifying because the Lord Almighty is the judge and Satan is leading the prosecution. Read along from verse 1, Zechariah 3, 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, do you get the scene? Joshua is the high priest. He's a real historical person. We meet him in the book of Ezra. He was the priest and he had a leading role in rebuilding the altar and the temple in Jerusalem. But this isn't the actual person, Joshua. This is Zechariah seeing Joshua in a vision. And Joshua's in the dock. He's the defendant in this heavenly courtroom. And the good news is the angel of the Lord is his lawyer. And the bad news is Satan is the prosecution. He brings the accusation. This scene might remind you of the start of Job, a heavenly courtroom. Satan, in verse 1, it's not a name, it's a title. Satan is the Hebrew word that means accuser. So the end of verse 1 could read, the accuser was standing at his right hand, right side, to accuse Joshua. This is this being's role in the courtroom to bring accusations. And he's bringing an accusation against the high priest, against the person whose job it is to represent the people before God. The high priest was to offer sacrifices, to offer worship to God, to enable and enact God's forgiveness. Now, we don't get to hear what the accuser has to say because 
This is a very strange courtroom. Before the accuser opens his mouth, before one accusation is uttered, the judge rips into the accuser. Verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Uh, This is absurd and incredible at the same time. Uh, You know those TV judges like Judge Judy? I don't quite get the legal realities of those courts. Quite often you see Judge Judy rolling her eyes, showing she's sick of people whining and whinging and complaining that they've got no basis in law, no basis in the truth. But I don't think even Judge Judy shouts across her courtroom. I don't think she shouts, I rebuke you, accuser. Get out of the courtroom. I have no time to listen to you. And she would definitely never say, shut your mouth, get out of my courtroom because the accused is under my protection. I've chosen to protect the accused no matter what you say. This is what's happening here. God, the Holy One of Israel, tells the accuser, Joshua is under my protection. Yes, he was in danger, on fire, but I snatched him out, I've rescued him. He's under my protection now. And what's even more amazing about this is Joshua is rescued and protected by God even though every accusation that was going to be brought against him, every accusation is true. His guilt is obvious for everyone to see. Verse 3, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Joshua hasn't just been caught out wearing pyjamas. His clothes are filthy, covered in mud and muck. But when even the worst criminal goes to court, he or she scrubs up as much as possible. They want to look their best, start with a good impression. But Joshua can't hide it. The truth is obvious for all to see. He is a sinner. The filthy clothes are symbolic of sin's guilt. And this is a problem not just for Joshua. It's bad enough for an individual to appear filthy before a holy God. This is a problem for all God's people, for all the Jews, because this is their high priest. Since the time of Moses and Aaron, since the time of the wilderness wanderings, God has commanded for special clothes to be worn by the priests. Ephods and robes, much of the clothing is symbolic. For example, the high priest wore two semi-precious jewels on his shoulders. And these jewels were engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel. They show that the priest represents the people before God. They're on his shoulders. As God looks at him, he sees the whole nation. But this priest is covered in filth. I reckon he's not only stained by his own sin, but by the sin of all the people, all of God's people. What What hope has this man got standing before God in God's courtroom? But the next thing that happens is amazing. He gets clean, spotlessly clean clothes. Verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Wow, God's, God's solution is radical. 
without any reason other than God's gracious choice and rescue, nothing deserving or worthy in Joshua himself, God gives him not just clean but fine garments. And God tells us what this means. Joshua's sin is taken away. And I love Zechariah's desperate boldness. What about the turban? Give him a a clean turban too. What's going on? I think Zechariah's drawing attention to the turban. A turban is like a hat, it's headwear. He draws attention to the headwear because of what the priest's turban represents. In Exodus 28, we're told about the words that are written on the turban. Exodus 28 says, Make a plate or label of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, Holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate. Whatever their gifts may be, it will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. Aaron was the first high priest. His turban declared him to be holy, set apart as God's representative, set apart as the one to offer sacrifices that bear guilt and make people acceptable to God. That's what Zechariah wants us to see. Joshua now has a clean, a pure, holy to the Lord turban. Not because he's earned it in his own right, not because he is pure, but because God has reached out and purified him. Now this vision is great news for Joshua and the Jewish nation. What they need most of all is a pure priest. What they need is to be able to stand before God and for the accuser not just to be rebuked, told to shut his mouth, but for the accuser to have nothing he could say anyway. Because the priest is wearing spotless clothes. But there's a problem here. How can God, the righteous judge of all the earth, how can he do this? How can he just shut down the accuser who has a valid accusation? Joshua's clothes were filthy from sin. How can he just swap the clothes and pretend sin was never there? And this raises a a continual problem. Throughout Israel's history, there have been godly and upright priests serving God, not perfectly, but faithfully. But there's also been plenty of sinful priests, like Eli, the high priest in Samuel's day, who turned a blind eye to his son's sin, his sons who took advantage of their role in the tabernacle, or the priests during the reign of Manasseh. There's no record of them complaining when a pagan idol, an Asherah pole, was erected in the Jerusalem temple. The priests, along with the kings and the people, have all been complicit in idol worship, the continual problem for Israel. Her priests wear filthy clothes. What can be done about it? Well, in the second half of the vision, as Joshua is now dressed in clean clothes, we hear a bunch of promises that point to how God will solve these problems. The first promise is a promise to Joshua, a promise that if he lives faithfully, obediently to God, he will be the priest. Verse 6, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says, if you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have a charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Now, The thing we have to work out is, what is the place among these standing here? The last bit of that verse. 
So let's think about it. Where's this vision taking place? In the heavenly courtroom. So the place could be a heavenly temple. It could be God promising if Joshua is obedient, he'll ascend to the heavenly temple and serve and worship God as priest in heaven. It could also be that these standing here refer to symbolic characters. In these visions, we've seen characters symbolic of Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor and the temple and the land. So maybe the promise is of an earthly priesthood. I'm not 100% sure what the promise refers to, but my gut is with the first option, a promise that he'll ascend as a heavenly priest. And we'll see why in a moment. So the first promise, obey and you'll be priest. The second promise is God is going to send the branch. Stick with me, pun intended. Uh, Verse 8. Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. Now, what's this branch? Notice in the NIV and probably other translations, branch has a capital B. It's a name. Zechariah is referring to a prophecy made a few hundred years earlier. Hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah prophesied of a king coming, and he named this king the branch. It comes up a few times in Isaiah. Uh, We'll have a listen to the prophecy in Isaiah 11, which says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesse is the father of King David. What Isaiah is saying is the promise given to David, the promise of 2 Samuel 7, the promise that one of David's sons would be a forever king, Isaiah is saying that king, the branch, the new shoot from Jesse and David's line, he is coming. God hasn't forgotten his promise to David. And Zechariah is recalling and repeating the promise. God is keeping his promise. The branch, God's king, the Messiah will come. So we've got a promise of a renewed priesthood and a new king and next a new temple. Verse 9. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Once again, this vision's a bit ambiguous. It could be the stone is a precious stone, jewels worn by the high priest, but I don't think so. I think the stone is a brick, symbolic of a new temple. So that's the stone. What about the eyes? It's unclear in our English translations, but in the Hebrew, uh, the seven eyes are most likely not on the brick looking out. The seven eyes are looking at the brick. A quick lesson in apocalyptic imagery, and remember from last week, apocalyptic doesn't mean end of the world, it means revelation. In apocalyptic visions, seven refers to completeness, wholeness. Think seven days make a complete week. And because it refers to wholeness, it's God's number. Because God is whole and complete in himself. The seven eyes are God's eyes. The point is, God is watching over his temple. He protects it. He'll guard it. But this temple, although it's a single stone, it's better than any temple you've ever heard of. Because what happened in the Jerusalem temple, it wasn't built at this point, rebuilt. But what had happened, what should happen, 
Day after day, year after year, sacrifices are made. But not in this temple. You build this temple, and it only gets used once. In one day, in one moment, in one event, all sin is removed. And because sin is removed, the final promise of this vision is of peace in God's presence. Verse 10. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. What's the promise? When this temple, this stone comes and removes sin, there'll be peace and prosperity because of God's presence. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Neighbors living in harmony together, sitting, enjoying God's provision of grapes and figs, life in God's land, in God's presence, with God's peace between God's people. It's an amazing picture. But as you continue to read the story of God's people, where do you see it? You open the pages of the New Testament, and yes, a temple has been built, but it's corrupt. In its courts are money changers buying and selling. The priests put burdens on people's shoulders they themselves don't keep. The priests conspire with other religious factions to accuse and condemn the Lord Jesus. Filthy clothes are still in fashion. But these promises given to Joshua point to Jesus. You may know this, but Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. I don't know if it's a coincidence or meaningful, but these promises given to Joshua point to and are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the branch, great King David's greatest son, but we'll focus more on that in later chapters in Zechariah. Jesus fulfills the temple. The stone the eyes are upon, that is Jesus. The stone temple was once the place you went for sacrifice, the place you were in the presence of God. Well, that's Jesus. Through his death on the cross, Jesus is the perfect and final sacrifice. And he is God himself. So being in Christ means being in the presence of God. Jesus is the new temple. And in Jesus, through his death and resurrection, sin is removed. Not just from the land of Israel in one day. No, sin is removed from all who trust in him. Sin is removed from people all around the world. And Jesus is the great high priest. Unlike Joshua, Jesus never had to be given clean clothes because he never sinned. Jesus' priestly clothes are always perfectly pure. And this means the promise of verse 7, the promise that if the priest walks in obedience and keeps God's holy requirements, he will serve in God's holy presence. The promise, that promise, is yes in Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He lived obediently. It's why Jesus needed to live a perfect human life. Jesus didn't just pop onto earth the day he was crucified. No, he spent his whole life walking in obedience, keeping God's requirements. And he died as a sacrifice for sin, rose again for our justification and ascended to heaven, 
where he lives eternally as our great high priest. God has kept that promise to Joshua in Jesus. And what this means for you and me, it doesn't matter what your clothes are like. It doesn't matter if you've got a a few spots on them or if they're absolutely covered in filth. It doesn't matter how big or small you may feel your guilt and sin is. If you trust in Jesus, he will take away your sin in one day. And he will be your great high priest, your representative before God, standing in the dock on your behalf so you can approach God in confidence. Not because of what you're wearing, but because of what Jesus wears. And this is a beautiful truth, a truth you can hang your life on. Let's hear it uh, as it's proclaimed in Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen.